assassins to another episode of the Dark Assassins Podcast, the show that dives deep into not just technology, but the concepts, software, and procedures behind it all, and explains it so simply that even your grandma can understand it. As always, I'm your host, the Dark Assassin. Welcome back to another weekend, my fellow assassins. I'm not sure about you, but I had quite the uh, busy week, as you will hear in this episode. And uh, one thing that many of you that have been listening for a while are probably well aware of is uh, I am a pretty big fan of Ansible, which is a tool that you can use to automate uh, a bunch of different stuff infrastructure-wise, deploy code, compile code across systems, manage systems, update systems. There's a ton of stuff you can do, and uh, I was neck deep, I guess, in uh, Ansible stuff this week, and uh, this is a perfect segue into this week's trivia question, which is about Ansible. So this week's trivia question is Ansible was originally or is currently owned by Red Hat and was created back in 2012. But who was the original creator? So uh, who is the original creator of Ansible is this week's trivia question. Now, before we get into the cybersecurity tip, um, on the topic of cybersecurity, back in the beginning of July, there was a, uh, a, a breach in uh, some Microsoft servers um, that basically led to the leaking of some emails from various uh, U.S. government organizations. And uh, there was a hearing or, or something to do with the, the Senate asking questions um, not too long ago. And um, one thing that I'm not going to say it's funny, but it kind of is in the ironic sense that it's quite ironic um, that the, uh, the, the, the senator uh, in question here, uh, Ron Wyden, a Democrat from Oregon, I think, uh, was basically asking into this, which, you know, props to him, um, you know, asking, like, why did this happen? Microsoft, how did you let this happen? Um, how did, you know, the this uh, Chinese-backed hacking group um, that, you know, gained access to the email accounts of the various government agencies, how did they get access to this? Microsoft might want to answer some questions here. Um, so props to him for that. Um, but the, the thing that's, that's interesting is, according to him, he alleges that Microsoft likely failed to store their, quote, high-value encryption keys... Um, in, in a secure place. Now, the thing that's kind of interesting about this is in a way, it's like Microsoft had a built-in backdoor to their encryption so that they could, you know, decrypt the stuff that they want to decrypt. And it, in an ironic twist here, it is kind of funny in the sense that, you know, governments, not just in the U.S., but across the globe, uh, want to basically put in backdoors to encryption to essentially spy on, you know, their citizens and gather all kinds of data, you know, for the sole purpose of 
keeping everybody safe. Um, yeah, we've heard that one before. Uh, but the funny thing is, right, they, they want to put in these, you know, backdoors to encryption. We talked, you know, a couple weeks ago on the podcast about the UK, you know, demanding that companies put, you know, backdoors into their encryption and companies are being like, well, if you want us to do this, we're just going to pull out of your country. Um, so it, it, in an ironic twist here, it is a little amusing that once the uh, backdoor of an encryption of encryption negatively affects you, now you get mad that there's backdoors to encryption. So I found that a little bit ironic. Um, but so so my real question is is where you been, bud? And uh, I guess you finally woke up and smelled the coffee um, that all of us have been uh, drinking for quite a long time now. Uh, because we all know that uh, putting backdoors into encryption is just asking for problems, um, as seen by your government emails uh, being stolen by China or a Chinese-based hacker group. Um, so obviously, putting backdoors into encryption will not be used solely by the good guys. If you put a backdoor into something, people are going to find it. So uh, that's one of the many reasons why you do not want to put backdoors into encryption. And uh, props to the senator from Oregon there that was asking Microsoft some, some questions about that. And hopefully this is a wake-up call for people that we should not have uh, backdoors in our encryption. And with that, I think that is a, a good transition into this week's cybersecurity tip. So for this week's cybersecurity tip, this is going back out to the software developers, and that is when you're compiling your software, uh, don't compile it with debug flags. Now, Debug flags are insanely helpful when you are trying to debug your programs, as the name suggests. Because what debug, debug flags do is they add a bunch of extra information into your programs. Like, you know, it basically helps debuggers, you know, analyze, you know, where you are in the code, helps you... Um, basically helps you understand better, makes it easier to figure out and debug things. So it adds a bunch of extra extra stuff into your binary. Um, but it also makes your programs a lot easier to reverse engineer because a lot of you know that debug information and variable names and all that kind of good stuff is baked into your binary. So it makes it a lot easier for an attacker or a hacker to, you know, throw your 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 binary into a disassembler like Ghidra or Ida or you know some other disassembler and uh, figure out relatively easily uh, what your program does. So for security purposes, it, whenever you're releasing your code, you you don't want to include the debug flags. Now. Another reason why you wouldn't want to include your debug flags is for, for size reasons and optimization reasons, because uh, having all those extra debug flags uh, makes your program a lot more bloated. Um, and if you don't believe me, um, 
write a basic C or C++ program, uh, compile it with a dash G flag, and then compile it with an optimization flag like O2 or something, and just see the difference in size. Um, debug flags add a, a decent amount of size to your program. Um, so, and obviously you, you don't want to be shipping a bunch of extra bloat in your programs. Um, so in, in addition to that, if you don't put the debug flags in there, it doesn't add all that extra information into your program, which would make it a lot harder, although not necessarily impossible, uh, for someone to reverse engineer your program. And similarly, if you don't throw the debug flags in there, because it would be harder to reverse engineer, it would also potentially be harder for attackers to find potential zero days or other vulnerabilities in your pro in your code as well. Although I guess it uh, should be mentioned that uh, if your code is completely free and open source, uh, the fact that you compiled with debug flags or not is really not going to do anything because they could easily just go and view the source code themselves. Uh, but obviously, if you are you know, working for a company or writing some other kind of proprietary software uh, that isn't free and open source, uh, that's the kind of the case where you, you definitely uh, don't want to give the attackers any, uh, any um, legs up or any 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 gimmies or you know any make their lives you obviously don't want to make their lives easier uh, by throwing in those debug flags so uh, whenever you're planning on actually releasing your code don't compile with debug flags and that is your cybersecurity tip for the week now we talked last week um, about a, a particular computer in my house that uh, that had a failure, that being my network attached storage server or my NAS. Um, now, that is a another good segue, I guess, into what nerdy stuff have I been up to this week? So I talked last week about my NAS having a, a drive fault and uh, how I kind of frantically ordered new drives to uh, to try to save it and not actually lose any data. Now, the great thing about having a, uh, a hot swappable drive base on the front of your server is uh, I was able to replace the faulted drive with the new one without actually powering off the server, or losing access to my NAS, or having any kind of downtime whatsoever. So that was was pretty awesome. Um, I was, I guess, slightly concerned during the process because, uh, rebuilding your array, if you, whenever you have to rebuild a RAID array, which in fairness, this was the first time I ever actually did it. Uh, but when you're rebuilding a RAID array, it puts a lot of strain on the drives. Um, now... The, the reason for this is because you're doing a bunch of, you know, reads and writes to the drives and it just puts a lot of strain on them. So generally when you're rebuilding an array like that is kind of the a, a common time where drives could fail. And seeing that the RAID array that I had set up was 
a RAID Z1 or basically the equivalent of a RAID 5, which basically means that I could lose up to one drive and not lose any of my data. Seeing that I had already lost one drive, if I lost another one, I would be at risk of some data loss happening. So I was a little concerned that, um, you know, another drive might fail on me. Thankfully, that didn't happen. Um, but if it did, it honestly wouldn't have been that big of a deal because I'm pretty sure, like I mentioned um, in last week's episode, I did have a very recent backup of my NAS that I had put on my XServe. So even if it, another drive would have failed and I would have lost data, um, I could have easily just, you know, copied that uh, 1.6 terabyte archive that I made back over once I installed some new drives um, and then unpacked that and got everything back up and running. Uh, but that obviously would have taken quite a while to do. Um, and speaking of taking quite a while to do, it did take a little bit of good of time uh, to rebuild that array. Um, so I, I don't know exactly how long it took, but my best guess is around four and a half hours. And I say best guess because I started the rebuilding process just after seven in the evening. And by the time I went to bed, which was like just before 11, I think, um, the it was about 85% done. So my rough back, back of the napkin math put that at, you know, I think like 4.4 or 4.5 hours roughly um, would be kind of the estimate of how long it took. Um, so sometime after I had went to bed, it finished. But when I woke up the next morning, everything was good. My my pool was happy and everything was good and uh, it made me feel a lot better uh, that I got that and everything was working. Now it potentially could have been faster if I left the failed drive in there because there's a chance that it could have been able to pull uh, some of the data off of that drive even though it had faulted um, and maybe sped up the process a little bit rather than having to scrape through uh, the two drives that were still good and recalculate all this stuff with the parity data that's baked into the array and rebuild it that way. So potentially I, I made it take longer by fully removing that drive. But at the end of the day, it still worked and my, my NAS is back up and running and, and everything's good. So I, I'm not too concerned and I, I don't really care too much. Uh, but, you know, if if slash when uh, another drive fails uh, might be something that I, that I try out. Um, but uh, my, my pool, which um, if you're unfamiliar with how, how TrueNAS works, which is what I'm using um, as my NAS software, um, so they have basically what's called... They, so they have a pool and they have VDEVs. Now, VDEVs are, are basically just your... Um, virtual, basically your, your, your RAID arrays, right? So if you have, in my case, I have one RAID array, and that would be one VDEV. Um, but the pools allow you to add multiple um, VDEVs together. Um, so you could potentially have, you know, the one of the ways that you this would be beneficial is if, say, you started out, you know, with... 
I don't know, six terabytes of storage uh, in your first VDEV. And then you were kind of getting close uh, to maxing that storage capacity out in your pool. Uh, you could just add another VDEV, add that VDEV to the pool, and expand your storage that way. Um, so so it, there is some, some benefit um, to having a pool like that. Plus, another benefit to adding multiple VDEVs to a single pool would be that you can have even more redundancy. So if you had a ton of drives, you could have multiple you know, VDEVs of, say, um, a RAID Z2, which is equivalent to a RAID 6, which gives you uh, two drives of parity. So if you, you could lose up to two drives without having to worry about any data loss. So you add two VDEVs of that into your pool. So now you can lose up to four drives, uh, assuming they're not all in the same VDEV uh, without actually have, losing any of your data. So there are, there are benefits uh, to adding multiple VDEVs. Um, but my pool is now happy and green. Now that I've replaced the drive, uh, so crisis averted. Um, and also, as a callback to last week's episode, um, I actually, I, I was kind of lying to you guys, because last week, the cybersecurity tip was that you should um, harden your SSH servers by not allowing password login. And uh, at the same time, basically, almost all of my servers at my house uh, had password login enabled. So I was kind of being a little bit of a hypocrite there. But I uh, fixed that and actually followed my own advice and went through and disabled password-based login. And now it's only uh ssh key based login so so improving my security there um now one thing that was a little that i did have to figure out was how was i going to do this for all of the servers that i run in my home lab which mind you i basically had to do this for probably close to 20-ish, give or take, uh, servers. Uh, so it's not, obviously, you're not going to catch me logging into each server and going through the process of modifying the SSHD config file in order to make it to disable, you know, both root access and um, password-based login access so you could only, you know, sign in with an SSH key. Obviously, you're not going to catch me doing that. Um, now, I could have, and I did, uh, write a script to, you know, automate that process for me. But, again, that means I would have had to log in to each server, run the script, log and that would have just been too much of a pain so obviously i went the natural route that i would go which is i used said batch script to accomplish the the task of um, updating the sshd config file to disable password and root-based logins and used ansible to automate all of that for me and Boy, was it was it glorious. So the other nice thing about me actually going through and doing this process was in addition to 
disabling, hardening my SSH for all my servers, it also hardened the SSH of my template servers too. So I run three virtual machines that basically serve absolutely no function whatsoever except to be a clone hub, basically. So what I mean by that is I have three servers, uh, one running Arch Linux, one running, I think, Ubuntu, and one running Red Hat. And basically the whole point of them is to be the most basic version of an install possible that I just periodically update with my update script. And then whenever I want to spin up a new VM, I basically shut that uh, virtual machine down, clone it, rename it to what I want it to be, and then run my init server Ansible playbook to basically create that server to be what I want it to be. Um, and basically configure things like the, a new user, IP addresses, host name, you know, all that good stuff. Um, so the nice thing about running this script on every single one of my servers was these templates were included. So now, whenever I want to spin up a new server and I use one of these templates, the SSH is already hardened and I don't have to worry about doing anything. Um, so that is one nice thing about you know having the, the templates there is that you can basically have it as much of a base install as you want and anything you do to that will be saved across any new future uh, machine you use uh, that is a clone of. So that was definitely a, a big win for sure. And that's not where the Ansible work ends. Oh, no, no, no. That was uh, was chump change compared to the Ansible work that uh, we're about to get into here. So being that I talk a lot on this podcast about software development and home labbing, it would not surprise me if... Some of you are familiar with a man of a man named Jeff Geerling. Now, if you're not familiar with who Jeff Geerling is, he is a uh, he he has his own YouTube channel. He does a bunch of things uh, software development wise. He's really big. He has a ton of projects on GitHub. Um, does a lot of stuff with software development, um, Ansible. Uh, DevOps, Kubernetes, home labbing, Raspberry Pis. I mean, he does a lot of good stuff. Um, and one of the projects that he houses on his GitHub is is a repo called uh, the Top 500 Benchmark. Now, the, the Top 500 Benchmark is basically a, a benchmark um, that I've, I'm going to forget the name but it's it's it uses the HPL benchmark which forgive me I forget what that acronym stands for um, but basically that it's a benchmark that's used to test and and benchmark um, you know the top 500 computers in the world so you know the biggest supercomputers you know run this benchmark on them and you get a score and that score you know kind of ranks uh, the top 500 computers. So he put together a benchmark um, that was basically an Ansible playbook that will go through all the steps of downloading all of the necessary uh, dependencies, all of the various programs that you need to actually 
uh, compile and run the benchmark with, compiles those programs, um, swaps you know SSH keys with all the hosts in a cluster if you're using a cluster, and then runs the benchmark and outputs the results. So it's a pretty pretty cool Ansible script. Um, but one thing that it I don't know if I'd necessarily call it lacked, uh, but it didn't have support for any other Linux distributions aside from Debian-based distros. Explicitly, I think he had on his uh, the README on the GitHub uh, Ubuntu 20.04 and newer, uh, Raspberry Pi OS, and I think Debian 11, I think, were the supported distros. Um, and then, theoretically... Um, any other distribution that's based on Debian uh, would be able to be supported as well. And if you're unfamiliar with what distributions are Debian-based, um, if you if when you run updates from the command line on your machine, if you do apt for your updates, it's Debian-based. Um, so that's easy way that you can can figure that out um, but I wanted to have support for more distributions so I as as I mentioned previously um, have VMs for Ubuntu which is Debian based as well as Red Hat and Arch so I wanted to try to expand the support of this top 500 benchmark. Now, this is actually a great way for any of you out there that are looking to get into open source development and want to contribute to open source projects, aside from your own, obviously, um, is basically find a project you're interested in and look to see if there's anything that you can add or contribute to it. In this case, I'm interested in trying to run this benchmark on systems that aren't, you know, Debian-based. So that's something that I could, you know, add and contribute to. Um, so just just an idea for, for any of you that are interested out there but don't know, you know, how to go about contributing to an open source project. Anyway, uh, the first distribution I started with was Red Hat-based distributions. So these are distributions like, obviously, Red Hat Enterprise Linux or RHEL, um, your CentOS, Fedora, Rocky Linux, Alma Linux, uh, I think Scientific OS or Scientific Linux, I forget exactly what it's called, uh, but basically the the uh, the distributions that use DNF as their package manager or are based on uh, Red Hat Enterprise Linux. Um, so in order to get this uh, distribution family working, it took a little bit of extra effort. Now, obviously, I had there were the dependencies were going to be different because the names of packages aren't the same between Debian-based distros and Red Hat-based distros. So, in the case of uh, Ubuntu or Debian, um, you have. Uh, your for your installing of like the development tools, for example, uh, you would install Build Essential was is kind of your your main development tools that has like your GCC, G++, uh, basically your C and C++ compilers and some other things as well. Uh, but in Red Hat based distros, uh, they do not have 
that package base devel or, or build essentials base devel is the arch version um so they don't have that so i basically had to find the equivalence which really wasn't that hard to do um, basically installed the development tools group as well as gcc fortran um I think the the Debian based version, I think it's just G Fortran, um, and the the Rel based version is GCC Fortran. Um, so it's just the the thing is, is they're like really subtle differences in the naming sometimes between various Linux distros, which can sometimes get annoying uh, when you hop between them uh, fairly fairly frequently. Um, trying to remember which specific wording of the package that you have to install is um, so that was hurdle number one but honestly that really wasn't much of a hurdle at all that was pretty simple to do uh, one weird quirk that I did run into though was when I was testing so I first started out testing Red Hat and and that worked fine and then I tried testing Fedora and it got mad at me for not having G++ installed or the C++ compiler. And I was like, what the heck? I installed the development tools package. It works fine on Red Hat. Why doesn't it work on Fedora? And it also happened to work on Rocky Linux too. And I was like, what the heck is this? Fedora, what, what are you doing? So for whatever reason, uh, Fedora just, I guess, didn't install the C++ compiler with the development tools package for some reason. Now, I guess there's a chance it could be that I used Fedora server rather than just, you know, basic Fedora, like the, the desktop version of it. Maybe that was it. I kind of doubt it, but maybe. Um, so anyway, that was a little weird quirk. Um, and then the other weird quirk that I ran into when working with the, the Red Hat-based family of distributions was... There's, there's a reason, I guess there's a reason why Red Hat and Red Hat based distributions are loved by the enterprise. And that's because their, their firewall is basically configured out of the box. Um, in other words, you basically can't access anything on it unless you manually enable it. Um, aside from like SSH, I think SSH is pretty much enabled out of the box. Uh, but if you want to like, run a web server or you want to run any other kind of server that you need would need to access you know a port on you pretty much have to go into the firewall settings and enable that and the reason I the way I found this out was I ran a Red Hat version by itself and it worked fine and then I tried to cluster a couple of them together and the benchmark just decided to hang. And I didn't know why it was hanging, and then I figured it probably had something to do with the firewall. So then I had to go into the Ansible script and basically write a, a custom, I don't know if module is the right word, but I had to write a couple custom, you know, plays or tasks, or not, not tasks, that's not right, uh, instructions basically to configure the firewall appropriately so the Red Hat firewall was, you know, allowing all the nodes in the cluster to be able to communicate with it. So I had to do some uh, some firewall configuration with Ansible, and uh, it's like I'm a cybersecurity guy or something. Oh, wait, I kind of am. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, so that was a little 
a little fun having to go through and uh, manually configure the firewalls. And one thing I did do, I don't know if I necessarily needed to do this, was once the benchmark ended, I basically removed the, the changes I made to the firewall. Basically just on the off chance that you wanted to be running this on some kind of like production-based system, which I'm not sure why you'd want to, uh, but basically if you already had firewall rules configured, I didn't want to mess with those at all. So basically what I ended up doing was creating a completely separate zone um, in the in the firewall settings specifically for this benchmark, which on the one hand actually made it a lot easier because I could literally just delete that zone and the firewall will be back to the way it was before I, you know, started adding things to it. Um, so in that way, it did kind of make things easier. Um, but yeah, that was was fun. Honestly, I probably just could have left it in there. Um, but then again, on the other hand, that does technically pose a security uh, threat potentially. Um, having you know uh, ports and well, I guess they're not ports. It'd be hosts being able to access uh, th directly through your firewall, um, and just leaving that in there is kind of a, you know, a pretty big hole that you want to patch. So, for the sake of security, once the benchmark was over, I, I just removed those. Um, but that pales in comparison to another thing that I had to fix. And again when just running vanilla Red Hat, and even Rocky Linux for that matter, things went off without a hitch. The Andy, and I guess technically Ubuntu also. Um, every different aspect of the, um, all the various files that are, are downloaded through the, the playbook to be manually built and installed as part of the playbook, all of that worked fine. And then I tried uh, Fedora and Arch. And they, let's just say they failed pretty hard. Uh, we already heard that Fedora failed pretty hard uh, because it didn't have the C compiler installed or GCC didn't have that installed. So I installed that and it still failed pretty hard. And it turns out that the one of the programs that's downloaded built and installed during this process is a is a program called atlas which i believe is like a linear algebra library i believe um so that was just crashing during not even like during the actual build process like it was failing during the configuration process and i was like well this is really not good so i did some digging into this took me hours maybe even a couple days uh of digging into this and basically i'll, I'll save you the uh the hours of of you know trying to figure out what the heck was going on and basically what was happening here was as part of the configuration process for atlas the source code for the configuration programs that it uses to do all of its configuration stuff like to figure out you know how many cpu cores you have how much memory you have how what you know what's your processor speed you know all the stuff information about your system used as part of its building and configuration process it uses a tool called fgrep which is basically just grep now 
the problem is um, fgrep is deprecated, which basically means that you, you really shouldn't be using it. Um, and it's not a problem if your version of grep is older. But if you're running a version of grep like, I don't know, 3.8 or newer, it will spit out a warning message telling you to use grep-f because fgrep is obsolete. So because every time you call fgrep, it outputs this warning message, it messes up the ability for Atlas to figure out what the output of its queries are because it has this warning message as the first line. So that was basically causing it to fail the configuration process and make my Ansible playbook unhappy. So I had to figure out a couple things. First, I had to figure out how to actually patch the source code in order to make it actually work. And the second thing was I had to automate that in the Ansible playbook itself. Now, some of you might be wondering why I didn't just, you know, check the version of grep and download a newer version of the Atlas source code. Well, I, 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 I thought of that too. And the problem is I was using the latest version of Atlas anyway. So that really wasn't an option. Technically, there was a newer version, but it was a developer version, which I think was from 2018, and that was the latest. And it was one, unstable, according to it being a developer beta. And two, it also used fgrep throughout and would have had the exact same problem. So there's basically no getting around this. I had to patch it. So you might be thinking, why don't I just do a, you know, a regex search for anywhere that there is fgrep and change it to grep-f. And that was actually a, a pretty good suggestion, and I tried that. Um, but that caused a couple errors. Specifically, it was causing pointer free errors where it was getting mad that I was trying to free a pointer that didn't exist, which not exactly sure why, since literally I only touch, I, I didn't touch anything relating to pointers so and, and core dumps. So that really didn't work, which actually, come to think of it, that error with the free pointers and the core dumps, I think was technically unrelated and was something else because that was also patches that I had to implement separately. Um, but also the the thing of it was is the the fgreps basically how it works is the Atlas source code is essentially using fgrep as part of a sprintf, which if you're not if you're not super well versed in C, basically what that's doing is they're writing out a command basically and saving that command in a variable and then executing that command at a later point in the program's execution. So all of the fgreps were in those basically here is what my command's going to do statements um, so that they can then be run later. So 
by running, changing all those to grep-f, you're essentially doing more work than you need to because all you have to do, which is what I did, was find the place where the command's actually being executed and modify that. Now, they actually made it really easy in, in a way because what they were doing was they were essentially piping all of the warning or error message output to the same place that were they were piping all the standard out output. So again, for those of you who aren't developers, and I'm probably sound like I'm speaking a foreign language right now, basically what that means is when you run a terminal or command line based program and you get output, that is generally considered standard out or standard output. Now, when you get errors and warning messages, those are piped to standard error. Now, there's a way that you can tell the program to send messages of standard out to one location and send the messages from standard error to a different location. But in this case, they were sending both of the messages to the same place, that being where standard out is being sent. So basically all I had to do was change that to send all the warning and error messages to dev slash null or essentially don't print them out at all is essentially what that is. So that was really only one fairly simple change. I only actually had to end up changing one file rather than like eight or ten or something like that. So definitely a big improvement there. And then we get into the other patches, which was the um, the pointer failure and the core dump. Now, honestly, I, I still am not entirely sure how the patch that I made works because literally all I'm doing is calling a print statement with a new line and that fixed the issue. And I'm really not sure why because... I, I really don't know. The only thing I can think of is like maybe the something wasn't getting flushed properly and printing out the new line is like flushing. The, I have no idea, but it works. So I'm, I'm really not complaining. And seeing that I was up to my usual tricks and up till like 3.30 in the morning <laughs> trying to hack at this and try to get it to work. When I finally actually got it to work, which honestly, I can't even remember if I got it to work that night or if I got it to work the next day or whatever. I don't remember. Um, probably because I was up till 3.30 in the morning. Um, but when I did finally get it working across you know, the systems that was having the issue, I was just happy it was working and it was implemented in the Ansible playbook. Now, I, I, I guess one thing that I, I should note is when I say I was up to 3.30 in the morning, there's probably some people out there that are like, man, you're up till 3.30 in the morning? Man, I get up like, you know, I'll be up in like a half hour. I'll be up in like an hour and a half or something like that. And then you have other people on the other side, they're like, it was only 3.30 in the morning. Man, I'm still going strong at 3.30 in the morning. So, but anyway, for me, that was that was pretty, pretty darn late. So I'll, needless to say, I was quite tired. But thankfully, unlike the last time I pulled one of these stubbornness, I'm going to keep hacking at this until I get it to work things, 
uh, I did not have to work the next day. So I was actually able to, you know, sleep in and not, you know, only get like a couple hours of sleep. So that was, was pretty nice. Um, now, so that was basically the, the saga that I had to go through for Red Hat based systems. Now the Atlas patching obviously still had to apply to Arch based systems because Arch based based systems are essentially the bleeding edge. So everything's super new. So the Atlas source patching had to apply there because the version of grep they're using is, you know, basically the newest that it can be. Um, now, when it came to adding support for Arch, this is where my my derp derp moment of the week comes in because I spent, I kid you not, literal days testing, debugging, and trying different approaches to fix an issue that was caused by the domain I was using in my config file for the Ansible playbook and the host name of the Arch system I was testing did not match. I kid you not, that was the error that took me days to figure out. So that was my derp derp moment of the week. Now, I honestly could not tell you why this caused an issue because regardless of the host name of the Arch machine and the the name I was using in my config file, they were pointing to the exact same IP address or in other words, the location on the, net, the network where that machine is. They're both pointing to the same thing. So why it didn't work, I'm not sure. Now, initially when this happened, I was assuming it was a firewall issue because it was having the same exact behavior that I witnessed on the Red Hat-based machines, where when I would run it in a cluster, it would just hang and nothing would happen. And the way I solved that for Red Hat-based systems was I modified the firewall to get it to work. I tried that on Arch, and it still didn't work. So, again... <laughs> You know, to save you some some time here, because like I said, I took days trying to figure this out, beating my head against the wall. Um, it, basically, what like I pretty much what try was trying everything. So like, <laughs> I went through the whole process of writing a you know additional you know items in the Ansible playbook to manually download, install, and configure AUR packages, uh, which are the Arch user repository packages, manually and doing that all via Ansible in an attempt to get this to work. And that still didn't work. <laughs> so yeah, it, it was it was it was pretty rough. And honestly, <laughs> I, I, I'm gonna be real. I, when I actually, got it working and realized the issue was a mismatch in the names, I honestly felt like a complete idiot that it took me that long to figure out that simple of an issue. Um, but yeah, so derp derp moment of the week definitely hands down goes to that. Now, I was hoping when I, when I first set out to work on this project uh, like last weekend, 
I was hoping that, you know, I would have been done with all of this by now and, you know, you know, had it up on my GitHub and, and all that good stuff. Uh, but because of the delays specifically for Arch, like I said, taking days to figure out because I can't do domain names, I guess, um, we, we hit some delays and some snags, so so I'm a little behind where I want to be, at least as of the recording of this podcast. But tentatively, as of this recording, everything works. And obviously, you need to put a decent-sized asterisk on that statement because I said the exact same thing when I got Red Hat working, and then I tried Fedora, and things stopped working. <laughs> Um, so uh, there's definitely more testing that needs to be done. Um, I'm planning on basically wiping all of the machines, doing like rolling them back with snapshots, which by the way, if you're doing any kind of VM testing of software or Ansible playbooks or anything like that, I can't stress enough that you need to be using snapshots because it makes your life so much easier that you can just easily roll back to before you ran the playbook or before you uh, tried to install the package or before you tried to run your code or whatever the case may be. You can easily roll back and it's so much easier than trying to go through the process of manually reverting everything to the way it was. Um, anyway, that, I guess, mini tangent aside, um, my, my goal is to basically revert everything back to stock before I touched it at all with this playbook to run the benchmark and install all the stuff and basically just give it everything a run to make sure everything works still. And then once that works, basically just try to find a bunch of other different Arch-based distributions and, and even Red Hat-based, although I think I have pretty good coverage on Red Hat with Fedora and Rocky Linux on there um, and Red Hat itself. Um, but basically, my, my goal now is just to do a lot more testing to make sure that this the, the, the changes I added more or less make it foolproof that it'll work. Um, another really interesting thing I noticed when trying to to run this playbook, though, was it's it seems to be really picky about the kinds of nodes that you have in your cluster. And what I mean by that is when I try to have... So when I run multiple nodes on a single hypervisor because I'm currently just doing all this in VMs right now mainly for the purpose of being able to roll everything back with snapshots um, when I run multiple VMs on the same hypervisor everything works fine but when I try to connect them to a different hypervisor everything just crashes at the benchmark run and what I narrowed this down to is your CPUs have to be very similar. I'm not sure if it's like the generation of CPU or if it's the clock speed or what have you, but basically the, the chips that you're using, the CPUs have to be, I don't know if they necessarily have to be the same, but they have to be very, very similar in order for it to work. So that was one kind of weird quirk that I ran into uh, when testing this. Because honestly, I thought I messed something up, uh, but it turns out I didn't. Um, so that kind of made me happy um, that it, it wasn't my fault. Um, but anyway, um, hopefully 
by the time this episode actually airs or shortly thereafter, I'll have the uh, the updated versions to uh, Jeff Gearling's playbook up on my GitHub as a fork of his repo. Um, that that's my hope anyway. We'll see how the the rest of the testing goes um, and whatnot. Um, and part of me is kind of wanting to submit a merge slash slash pool request uh, when I'm actually done with all this and get everything kind of finalized um, and, and get these changes actually merged into his main repository. So it'll have, you know, support for Arch and, and Red Hat based systems, which I honestly think would kind of be kind of cool. Um, but I still haven't fully decided yet if I want to do that or just keep it as a fork on my own um, GitHub. But I think, I don't know, part of me kind of now is kind of leaning towards just do it anyway because, you know, it doesn't hurt to ask, right? Um, and that would be kind of cool, I think, to uh, contribute to a you know an open source project like that, which I say contribute to an open source project, but I'm pretty sure he's technically the only person that's actually pushed changes to that repo. I don't think anyone else has, so that would be kind of cool to... Uh, be another contributor on that i think uh but regardless um i will definitely be providing updates on how this goes next week so you'll definitely want to tune in next week to hear uh, about that how all that process went you know if i if i do end up deciding which i'm i I guess i'm kind of leaning towards at this point uh going through the process of you know putting through putting a pull request in uh to get try to see if i can get my changes I make merged into his main repository, kind of giving you some insight on, you know, what that kind of process is like. Um, So I guess what I'm saying is, is you should definitely keep an eye on possibly my GitHub, but definitely Jeff Gearling's GitHub, since there may, maybe there's a chance that, um, you know, you might see your boy uh, pop up on uh, on Jeff Gearling's GitHub, but you know who's to say? At the end of the day, right? It's it's his repo, so if he wants to include my changes, he can, or he can just say no, I don't want to include your changes. Be gone. Uh, that's totally cool too. Um, part of it, part of me thinks that there there is a chance that he would say no just because I'm including support for Red Hat-based distributions, and I know he was definitely very against, um, you know, you know, we talked a couple weeks ago, Red Hat's decision to basically not close source their, their software and their, their operating system, but essentially put it behind a paywall. He was obviously very against that, and, and to be quite honest with you, I mean, I'm not a fan of it either, um, but I think because the Red Hat-based family of distros also includes things like Rocky Linux and uh, Fedora and Alma Linux and, you know, other distros that aren't, you know, doing Red Hat things, uh, I think there might be a chance that he might accept it. Plus, um, the fix that I, the patch that I added for Atlas, um, I think is definitely going to creep up. <laughs> As, uh, you know, the versions of Ubuntu with the LTS kernels get updated. So, like, currently the the latest version of the LTS Ubuntu 2204 
Um, the version of grep in there, I believe, is 3.7, so it's still fine. It, it's not going to get the, the angry warning message, but I'm assuming when they come out with their, their new release, uh, which I guess will be 24.04 uh, sometime next year, um, I'm assuming it'll have a newer version of grep that will have this same issue. Um, so I'm hoping that it... it, it you know, it'd be, the merge request would be accepted and whatnot, but I guess we'll have to see. Like I said, at the end of the day, it's his repo. He can do whatever he wants. If he wants to deny it, he's more than in his right to do so. Uh, but, you know, we'll just have to wait and see and uh, definitely keep an eye on GitHub. Um, now, we talked in this episode quite a bit about Ansible pretty much the entire well, I guess technically not the entire episode, but even the parts where we were talking about, you know, C code specifically, it was in relation to Ansible because I was using Ansible to update the C code <laughs> through patches and whatnot. Um, but I think that is a, a good transition into our trivia question for this week, which was also about Ansible. So Ansible, which is currently owned by Red Hat, was created back in 2012. But who was the original creator? Now, if you said Michael DeHaan, you are correct. So congratulations to those of you who are even more knowledgeable about Ansible than I am, because I didn't know that before doing the research for this episode, uh, specifically for that trivia question. Uh, and, and the reason why I, I, which actually I guess the the funny thing about this trivia question is um, literally probably about like, I don't know, 10, 15 minutes before I sat down here to record this week's episode, I was like, you know, I'm going to be talking a lot about Ansible. What if the trivia question was who created it? And quite honestly, I thought that was going to be, or actually, my original thought was what year was it initially released? And then I realized that Red Hat wasn't actually the original creator of Ansible, and I was like, oh, I didn't know that because I, I just assumed uh, that Red Hat was the original creator, but they're obviously not. Um, so I figured, hey, that's that'd be a pretty good trivia question. Really tie everything together this week. So, yeah, you know, everything from this this episode was kind of a uh, a, a a round robin, you know, covering all of our bases. Right. We got some. We got some cybersecurity stuff in there. We got some some programming information in there. How you know different parts of code works, automation and home labbing with Ansible. I mean, we kind of covered the gambit here. Um, so I think that is a a definitely a, a good, well-rounded episode. I think, and uh, definitely be sure to tune in next week as I guess this saga or epi or journey continues. Um, with the top 500 benchmark updates um, and me potentially trying to see if I can't get my my changes merged into Jeff's uh, repo on his GitHub. So you'll definitely want to tune in next week for that. 
But as far as this week, if you enjoyed this episode, I ask that you leave it a rating and review and subscribe to the Dark Assassins podcast if you haven't done so already. And also be sure to share this episode with a friend or family member. And if you have any questions about this week's episode or if you have any comments or topic ideas for future episodes, uh, feel free to shoot me an email at contact at darkassassinsinc.com. There is a link down in the show notes below for that. And that's going to do it for me in this episode of the Dark Assassins Podcast. Until next time, my fellow assassins, remember, bull nothing equals true. If action not equal to null, return true. I'll see you next time on the Dark Assassins Podcast. <laughs>